I should be better at this. Should have rehearsed. <sighs> who was the president before... Sean, if you expect either Bobby or I to know who the president was in 1896. Bill... Clinton. Not Bill Clinton. O'Reilly. 1896 president. I'm just looking it up. Billy Blanks. William McKinley. Bill McKinley. Okay. Now, no one will know that I had to look that up because I will edit it out. No. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie. Got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore And since I started singing they already added more So stop wasting time on the theme song Just tell us the name of the show It's called the podcast for tennis shoes What a terrible name for the show It's worse than the theme song Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,762 movies on Disney+. Plus. My name is Sean and I am here with good news, everyone. Good news, Robbie wasn't eaten by a bear. I'm alive. Hi. Hi, Robbie. <laughs> How was the forest? It was great. Not eaten by a bear. Yeah, not eaten by a bear. No self-reception except the top of a mountain. Just hung out, took it easy, went for a couple of kayaks. So last episode, we did bed knobs and broomsticks. Robbie recorded from the <laughs> middle of the forest from a ski shack, and uh, his battery died just before the ending. So we got to get it now. Robbie, what did you think of bed knobs and broomsticks? I, I mean, I fell asleep. I'm putting it at the bottom third. All right. Well, I'm going to have to censor those opinions because uh, I got to say... That episode, it's getting a lot of traction, and it's getting a lot of traction from people who apparently love this film. Oh, really? Oh, no. I'm getting, I'm, I've gotten multiple messages from people being like, oh, you did bed knobs and broomsticks. I love that really? movie. I can't wait to hear what you say about it. And I'm like, yeesh. Eey. Oh, no. Well, so long as they hate Return to Oz and Oz the Great and Powerful, they will never hear Robbie's opinion because they have to listen to this episode to find it. I'm also here with Bobby, whose voice you just heard. Bobby, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Sean, how are you? I am too hot. It's way too hot here in Toronto, but uh, I have myself a little drink, so if you hear me slurping throughout the entire episode... <laughs> What are you drinking? Oh, I'm actually drinking some cider. I'm drinking No Boats on Sunday. <laughs> nice. It's a little advertisement right there. Hopefully, we can get some sponsorship. Sponsorship from No Boats on Sunday? A little lolly, as they say <laughs> in uh, bed knobs and broomsticks. All right. So, as you mentioned, Bobby, today we are talking about 1986's Return to Oz. So, a little background here and... I'm going way back, okay? So the book was written in 1900, but who cares about that? We're not doing a podcast about L. Frank Baum. We're doing a podcast <laughs> about Disney+. Plus. And so I want to start this story in 1937 when Walt Disney released Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It was a massive su success, and he wanted to follow up with a bunch of other fairy tales. And first on his list was The Wizard of Oz. 1937? 1937. Okay. Who's beat to the punch by MGM, who purchased the rights before him and released the musical Wizard of Oz in 1939. But Walt Disney, he holds a grudge, apparently, and he never <laughs> lets it go. And uh, when the rights to the books came up for auction in early 1950s, he jumped on it and he bought the rights to every single Oz book. Makes sense. 
he set out to make an animated Oz movie eventually decided maybe what he should do is he should do a live action version of it, perhaps doing a sequel to what the 1939 version presented because he owned the rights to all of the sequel books. There were 13 of them. And he could do it as a series on (laughs) The Wonderful World of Disney, which was 13 books and they've made three movies. There's there's 14 books, isn't there? Probably 14, including the original. I guess there was 13 sequels. And they've made three Um, movies. <laughs> Out of that. Well, just hold on. Hold Sorry. on. Well, the third one doesn't count. <laughs> Oz the Great and Powerful is not a movie. We'll get to that. He decided he would do it as a series. Now, they had done some successful series on the television program that was at the time called Disneyland. It then evolved into being called The Wonderful World of Color and then it was called The Wonderful World of Disney. One thing they did was the Davy Crockett series, which was so successful that they re-edited those into multiple movies. And he thought maybe we could do the exact same thing. We'd adapt all of the books into a series and we could then turn them into multiple movies and get theatrical releases out of that. He started preparing a series on the Disneyland television show called Dorothy Returns to Oz. And he had scripts written. In fact, there was a script written by uh, Bill Walsh. Oh, wow. Who wrote Mary Poppins and Blackbeard's (laughs) Ghost and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. He had songs written. There were multiple songs written. Oh, they were going to take this one in the musical. As they were preparing it, he wanted to cast the Mouseketeers in this movie. And he eventually decided that the TV budget wasn't going to allow them to do what they needed to do. There were too many sets, too many special effects. They really needed to do it in color, which wasn't conducive to uh, on television. If they were going to shoot it in color, but then originally show it in black and white, it seemed like it was a waste of time on both ends. So then he shifted and he said, I'm just going to make one movie. We're going to make a sequel to The Wizard of Oz. It's going to be called The Rainbow Road to Oz. <laughs> and then it just never happened. Months later, people were like, weren't you going to shoot an Oz movie? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was <laughs> never going to make an Oz movie. <laughs> the rumor is, apparently there's no official story to what happened, but the rumor is, is that the budget just ballooned so much and he was never really comfortable with the script. He got cold feet and he chickened out of making it. He canceled it at the very last minute. They were literally weeks away from production. He decided that their first live-action musical would instead be Babes in Toyland, <laughs> which itself kind of bombed, apparently. That's another one I want to do. I remember seeing that as a as a kid, I think, on Disney Channel or whatever, in mean, the wonderful world of Disney. We have a slot open for next week. We'll talk about it. Hey! And so what happened was Disney ended up sitting on the rights for like 30 years and doing <laughs> nothing with them. Uh, he never made a movie. He never made a TV show. He at one point considered making a Disneyland ride, even though they had never made any other properties for it. But that went nowhere. Finally, in the early 80s, some Disney executives sat down with Walter Murch. Now, Walter Murch was an editor who had worked with George Lucas and... Um, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. I actually did research for this episode. He had co-written THX 1138. He had edited American Graffiti. He had edited The Godfather, The Conversation Apocalypse Now. He had done sound editing on a lot of those movies as well. He was kind of this savant, and Disney wanted to get in with him. They were like, this Walter Merch guy, he's going places. This is like the same group of filmmakers like um, Spielberg, Lucas. Who's that guy that uh, rewrote... um that uh, monologue from Jaws. Milius? Yeah. John Milius? Yeah, Milius. It seems like to be the same, like, 
group of people, this Walter Murch guy is in no, there. No, it's just six people who made everything that was good in the 70s yeah. and 80s. And they all, like, vacationed together in Hawaii. Yeah. I just, I'm grouping him. He probably wasn't, but I'm grouping him in with the same people. Like, just these... Well, he was. He, like, went to film school with, like, Lucas, and he was part of that, oh, wow. like, okay. early American zoetrope company with, yeah. with Lucas and Coppola. So he comes into Disney, and he's talking to Disney. He says, you know what I would really love to do is another Oz film. And the Disney executives go, well, you're never going to believe this, but (laughs) we own the rights to that. We've done nothing with it for 30 years. (laughs) And so they started making a sequel to Wizard of Oz. What they ended up with was a package of eldritch horrors (laughs) that I have a hard time understanding how this ever came into creation, but I am so glad. I love it so much. I said that too, watching it. I was like, wow, this is like David Cronenberg mixed with Clive Barker for kids. (laughs) You know, I thought it was going to take a little longer for us to get into the more adult content on Disney+. Plus, But here we are, episode 10, and we're doing a straight-up horror film. It uh, was written, co-written by Walter Murch and Gil Dennis. It was starring Faruja Balk. Uh, who we know from Almost Famous and The Craft. She did a bunch of stuff in the 90s. This was her first movie. She plays Dorothy Gale, the lead. At like 10. I, I, I made a note of that. Like, right off the bat, I was like, she's much younger than Judy Garland. Like, considerably younger. Six years. Well, yeah, at that yeah. point in time in your life. Like, yeah. <laughs> you go from being a baby to six years old. That's a huge chunk of di- you know difference between 11 and 17 or whatever it is, too. It's funny you mention that because there is a video on YouTube of an interview where someone asks Walter Murch, why do you think children were so frightened of your movie? <laughs> One of a hundred reasons. First, he says, I don't know. I was so surprised. I didn't really understand it. And then the first explanation that he gives... This is the guy who edited Apocalypse Now and The Godfather, <laughs> right? That's his sentiment. Like, that's his baseline. So, I, I, okay. And the first thing he says is he says, well, maybe one of the reasons is that Judy Garland was 15 when they made The Wizard of Oz. So she was a teenager playing a young girl who's supposed to be like nine. And there's a suspension of disbelief when you watch that where children don't feel like they're the ones that are actually in danger. They see someone who's more of an adult playing a child who's more comfortable and confident. And so seeing an actual nine-year-old in danger is scarier. This is the first thing he says. And then he goes on to talk for about six minutes where he lists like 140 other things where he's like, or maybe it was all of the scary monsters we created or maybe it was the fact that the danger was so realistic because we kept throwing people into raging rivers you know or maybe it was just the the fact that so many people die oh yeah a witch takes her head off that's scary and by the end of it i'm just like yeah you probably should have thought of this list before you made the movie buddy oh, i love it so much like half my notes are just this is fucked who greenlit this? This is amazing. I'm so happy this exists. I love this movie. I read that he he did get fired a week into production. Yeah. Because he was having panic attacks, he was overstressed, and Disney was very concerned with the footage they were getting. I wonder why. 
very understandably concerned. <laughs> the first shot of the Wheeler would just be like, what are we doing exactly here? This is for kids? As soon as they saw Mumby take her head off, right? I'm pretty sure someone oh would have said, let's take a step back here. <laughs> Apparently, George Lucas personally intervened and assured Disney that if merch ended up being unable to complete the film, he would personally finish the film himself as long as they gave merch another chance to finish it. So we could have had George Lucas's return to Oz, but uh, who knows what that would have been like. Uh, uh, wait, Sean, have you not seen Strange Magic? No, I haven't. Whoa. You're not choosing that for next week. No, We're no, not no. doing Strange no, Magic. No, 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 we are not doing Strange Magic. So imagine basically ants, <sighs> but it's a glee musical. All right, Robbie, tell us the plot <laughs> of Strange Magic. <laughs> well, it's Apparently we're doing Strange Magic stars, this week, people. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, or is it Evan Rachel Wood? It's one of those three-word names. And uh, Alan Cummings, he's the bad guy. But he's really the good guy, just misunderstood deep down inside. Robbie, all of this is going to be cut when I edit the episode. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> AJ's watched that movie like four times, and she hates it. Why does she keep watching it? I don't know. That's the first thing I've ever heard that explains your marriage. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I wonder... You know, why do you two make such a good partnership? And now I know it's because both of you will watch horrible films you hate multiple times for some strange, broken, psyche reason. Yeah. Getting back to the movie that we're actually talking about this week, Return to Oz. Bobby, how does this movie begin? This movie begins, uh, is it the opening shot you see Dorothy lying in her bed unable to sleep? Well, the exact opening is actually, it opens on a starscape. Right, right, right. Sort of like it's sci-fi-y. Yeah. Yeah. And you get green letters return to Oz. And then the camera pulls back and it reveals that you're looking at a mirror that is reflecting the sky through an open window. Dorothy is lying in bed. She can't sleep and she's staring at the sky through the window, through the mirror. I gotta, I gotta stop us for one second. I, I have already alluded to the fact that I love this movie. Um, I've kind of given my history with this film on previous podcasts. I watch it all the time as a kid. Uh, Sean, you had seen this movie just once before, right? Robbie, I want you to clarify. What does all the time as a kid mean? How many times have you seen this movie? I've probably seen this movie 20 times. 20 times? Yeah. That's a two that has a zero after it. 20 times. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I am pretty sure I own it on DVD. Or I know wow. I own it on DVD. I'm If it was released on Blu-ray, I probably own it on Blu-ray. Uh, there is a 30th anniversary Blu-ray. I'm pretty sure I own that then. Wow. That's got to be some sort of a record. I'm not sure the theater had 30 screenings of it when it originally came out. Uh, no. It made like less than half of its budget. It, it bombed terribly. Yeah. For obvious reasons. The obvious reasons <laughs> being that apparently Disney switched management at the time when the new management saw the film. They were like, no, we're not putting anything into this. Because it, it is nightmare spawn. Yes. And this is for kids. This is intended to be for children that will surely scar them for the rest of their days. Anyway, Robbie, you saw it 20 times. Yeah, I've I mean, obviously that's an estimate, but around that, I would say. There was one movie store that had that VHS copy, and it was nowhere near my house, and we drove to go get it. Had to wait for, like, a parent to go drive us to go pick it up. And, yeah, we watched it and showed it to some neighborhood friends, and they were like, what are we watching? And they were getting scared. I'm like, look, it's the Wheelers. <laughs> did you, like, charge admission? I wish I did. This oh, is man. like, you were the only kid in town with a porno, and everybody's like, oh, my God, he's got, <laughs> he's got Return to Oz. We got to go over to his house. 
Don't tell our parents. And then it was so much more scarring than any porno you could have seen as a child. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, as, we, as I was watching it last night, I watched it uh, with my wife. Her her only comment was, this movie's creepy. And I was like, yeah, no shit. But I noticed that I was like, I quoted the lines of dialogue. I knew when the sound cues came up, I knew the whole thing. Yeah, I uh, I actually made my girlfriend and her sister watch this as well. Originally, yeah. they're like, oh, this is going to be fun. And like 10 minutes into it, my girlfriend just turned <laughs> to me with this <laughs> bewildered look on her face. You had seen it once before, right? I had seen it once before. Recently, I've only seen it as an adult. Yeah. About two years ago for the first time. When it came on Disney Plus, because it was the first opportunity I'd had to see in it, because I could never rent it as a child, because apparently you had the only copy. <laughs> I had it out on video. I had rented it the whole time. Yeah. So I had never seen it. I watched it about two years ago as an adult, an adult, and it was a baffling experience. I had heard it was a very scary movie for kids, but it exceeded my expectations in that regard. <laughs> I didn't hate it when I watched it. I was like, that wasn't bad, but I don't understand why anyone would make it. Um, just to give a little spoiler, watching it a second time, I'm starting to like it quite a bit. I think this is actually a very good film. It's just bizarre. Yeah. I hadn't actually seen it until this week. This was my first time watching it and knowing other than Robbie being like, I love this movie. And I was like, okay, well, this is I, I know Robbie pretty well. He loves AVP. Let, let's see what I'm in for. Yeah. I dug the shit out of it. I like we'll, yes. get, we'll get to rating. No, I. Yes. I mean, knowing that there is childhood footage of Rob singing "Jump Magic Jump" from Labyrinth somewhere in in the universe. <laughs> what are you describing, Bobby? What is this story? Nope. No, we don't need to talk about this. No, we do. Apparently, there nope. is no. <laughs> no, Robbie, it, it's good because apparently there's somewhere home home video cam footage of Rob and his sibling singing Jump Magic Jump while they're watching Labyrinth. And all I was going to say is the only thing stopping me from not having footage of that happening is the fact that we didn't own a video camera. <laughs> yeah. I like I loved Labyrinth when I was a kid and this would have scared the shit out of me as a child, but it would have been one of those ones I would have I would have just the same as Rob. I would have watched it probably countless times. Like I I always liked I kind of weird darker stuff like this even if it scared me. Yeah, like the Dark Crystal Labyrinth this type of... Well, I mean, like, this has got a pretty big Henson connection. It does. Well, I looked into it, too, and this is... Neverending Story came out a year or two before this. I think I think Neverending Story is 1984. Um, and then Labyrinth is 86 or 87. And then Dark Crystal is, like, 82. So you have this, like, string of these really dark fantasy movies coming up for children. This one isn't so much a dark fantasy. As, as I said, this is a horror movie for children. So we can just talk about um, the Henson connection right now. So there's two parts of a Henson connection. So Lyle Conway, who helped create the Jim Henson Creature Shop, uh, left the company in the mid-80s, around this time, to create his own separate creature shop. Um, and he worked on this film, as well as Little Shop of Horrors, doing the special effects and the puppetry for that. Weirdly enough, I don't understand the background behind this, because you tell that story and you're like, ooh, Lyle Conway had a falling out with Jim Henson. But he took with him Brian Henson, yeah. <laughs> who in this film plays Jack Pumpkinhead. He's one of the two puppeteers, and he also does the voice. Yeah, he did the voice. I, I saw that for the first time, because, like I said, I've seen this movie 20 times, and... uh yeah, I never knew it was his voice. And I mean, speaking of movies we've seen 20 times, Brian Henson went on to direct Muppet Christmas Carol, which Robbie and I watch every single Christmas. We'll we'll get to that eventually. Oh my god, I'm so... Oh, I never even realized. Oh, are we going to watch that at Christmas for this podcast? We'll see. We'll see. Oh, I'm so excited. There's a lot of movies to get through. Bobby, how does this movie start? We already talked about the first shot. What happens after that? Dorothy's lying awake. She can't sleep. And this is where Shooting Star... 
There is a shooting star, yeah. There's a shooting star. So she sees a shooting star, and I believe she meant because Toto's in the room with her, and she mentions to Toto that there's a shooting star, as if to imply she's wishing on something or that she knows that means something special. Well, yeah, she can't sleep, right? Because she clearly has PTSD from being caught in a tornado and going to a magical land and being chased by a wicked witch, right? And then you, you, you get the exposition in the background of saying it's been six months since the events of Wizard of Oz. And she hasn't been able to sleep all night. And uh, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em, is that her? Yep. yep. Yeah. And they are talking about how how concerned they are with this and how they need to solve the problem. And you get the explanation of, well, we could take her to that doctor. And Henry says, we don't have the money. And she says, look, my sister says, she'll loan it to us. Like, I, th- I think we should take her up on this. It's not charity if it's family. And so the doctor specifically is going to do electroshock therapy. The second scene of this movie is... <laughs> Auntie M and Uncle Henry discussing about how they're going to electrocute Dorothy. Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz. To cure her mental illness. Yes, yeah. her PTSD. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to the hospital stuff, but that's the stuff that would have scared me as a child. Like, for, as a child, I think that being alone in the hospital is like, that is the really scary stuff. It scared me as an adult. You mean being locked in what is an insane asylum with people screaming from the basement? Uh, yeah. So the next morning, after she hasn't slept all night, Dorothy goes out to get an egg for breakfast. And she goes to their chicken, uh, Belina. And Belina won't lay an egg. Probably because Belina is similarly scarred from the fucking tornado (laughs) (laughs) that ran through their farm six months ago. Just to point out, they're actually living in half a house because their house was carried away to Oz. And so Uncle Henry is rebuilding the house and there's only like two usable rooms. And so they're all sleeping in the same bedroom with a single half kitchen able to live in. And the rest of the house is still being built around them. The first thing that's insane about making this movie is that it is a demonic horror film for children that scares adults. The second crazy thing about making this movie is that it's a sequel to a movie that doesn't exist. They've made something that is partially a sequel to the 1939 movie yeah. in a few different ways, and partially a sequel to the book as an adaptation of the sequel books. And they've mixed that together, but in a way that sort of presumes you've already seen a first movie that was never made. Because they talk about events that sort of happened in the 1939 movie, the MGM movie, but also sort of didn't happen. What do you mean, what didn't happen? The desert. Yeah, there is there is no deadly desert. Okay, yeah, later on in the movie. Yeah, sorry, yes, she does. The deadly desert that surrounds Oz, right? It's never, it's, yeah, it's never addressed in The Wisdom of Oz, obviously, because that would scar people, because <laughs> it does. They never talk about the deadly desert in the 1939 movie, but in this film, she seems to know everything about it. The characters of the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow are very yeah. different, not just in character design, which I understand, but just in the way that they're presented. They're clearly very different characters. And yet the movie is also not just an adaptation of the books because they take elements, a lot of elements, from the 1939 movie. First of all, crafting it as a dream sequence is the 1939 movie. In the books, that's never even alluded to. Oz is just a a magical world that she goes to in multiple different ways. Oh, cool. The ruby slippers also aren't from the books. The ruby slippers are silver slippers in the books, but they actually uh, use ruby slippers in this to connect it to the 1939 movie. And apparently they had to pay MGM a boatload of cash to get the like the likeness rights for the ruby slippers. 
This was just the most expensive movie. Walt Disney just spent a fortune on accumulating every single right associated with this. And that's what they made. He spent so much money. He spent 30 years that they made the return to Oz. Money and time well spent. Uh, yes. Um, my partner, she kind of, she came down halfway through, but she'd actually seen it as a kid. I, like I said, I'd never seen it. And she, as we were kind of watching it, she referred to this as the Wizard of Oz equivalent of Dr. Sleep. Where it's a sequel to a movie, but it's also okay. an adaptation of the book and combining two. Robbie, tell me about what happens here. After Be- when he goes out to get Belina's egg, what happens? Uh, she finds a key. Uh, uh, Belina uh, pecks it off of the pile of hay, and uh, Dorothy looks at the key and she sees uh, two letters. O and Z, and she says, this is the key from Oz. It must be my friend the Scarecrow who sent it to me on the shooting star. And she uh, she tries to show Aunt M this, but Aunt M just says it's the uh, old key from the house. Back in the day, I must have turned that thing a hundred times. Which, again, is building onto this structure of presenting the whole thing as if it could be just a dream. Yeah. Which really doesn't exist in the books. Yeah, the first movie... They do that whole thing, right, where the Tin Woodsman, the Cowardly Lion, and uh, the Scarecrow are all helpers around the farm, right? The farmhands are all just uh, the the other characters. So they do that in this movie, again, right? Mm-hmm. They carry that theme forward. She has the key to Oz, but Aunt Em is like, shut up. <laughs> Nobody cares. Electrotherapy for you. Look, you're tired when you wake up, and I need you to, to get to Chorin, so uh, let's shock your brain a bit. So they ride into town to give her some electroshock therapy. Rewatching this, I just always assume the doctor was evil from the get-go but he plays it very nice and charming i took it that this doctor believes in his his treatment right i mean maybe the damaged patients in the basement could lead them to be otherwise but apparently electroshock therapy actually has lots of applications you know since 1899 uh, there's been a lot of advancements in it. So I'm assuming back in the day, it was just like, hook you up to this battery, let's go. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. They, they just put earmuffs and yeah. attach them to a battery, and then they just turn it on. So probably not the most refined of sciences back then. But I took it to be kind of genuine, his intentions. That's another element of what I find just so hilariously weird and awesome about this movie is... You're exactly right. He portrays it. And this is so the the doctor is the same actor. It's Nicole Williamson. Nicole Williamson is probably it's a it's a man's name. And he also plays the king of the gnomes once they get to Oz, which is the primary villain. Uh, but you're right. He does play the doctor as quite genuine and authentic. And just to get ahead of ourselves at the end, we find out that the doctor is the only one who dies. And so yeah. the movie presents it as, you know, maybe he did believe in what he was doing, but he's still burned to death in a horrible fire, <laughs> which is just as terrifying as the rest of the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he dies off screen in a horrible fire. But like, he went back in to save his machines. So, I mean, I could believe it if he went back in to save the patients from the basement. But no, he just went back in to save his machines. That's so. right. They do say that, don't they? He ran in yes. to save his machines. That's just, that's such an insulting way for people to remember your death. <laughs> yeah. Like, how would they even know that? Did he yell it out? My machines! No! <laughs> like, how do they know that's what he was running in for? It sounds like something you just say about an asshole you don't like. She's probably saving those fucking machines. <laughs> As they're talking about them when they died. After they died. <laughs> they died a horrible yeah. death. Their charred carcass is being carried yeah, out. that idiot. You're like, fucking assholes hey. probably just saving those machines. Mm. What a jackass. But 
the nurse, the head nurse, no, she's bad from the start. She's wearing the witch's dress from the original Wizard of Oz. You know she's bad. Yes, exactly. So they drop off Dorothy at this insane asylum. And they say, see you tomorrow. <laughs> and they leave like a little lunch pail with her. Mm-hmm. And then the insane asylum locks her in the basement. They lock her in a cell. They, they they set up a kind of like little bit of an Oz like thing. He walks her through his uh he walks her through the machine and says, There's nothing for you to be afraid of. See, here's his eyes. Look right, here's his nose, and this little dial is his tongue. So you have nothing to be afraid of. Now go in the basement with the crazy people. So he's anthropomorphizing this machine, which is a precursor to the fact that she's it's basically TikTok. It's supposed to represent TikTok in terms of the real world, and then that's what she manifests into this dream reality of Oz, is that she gets there, and then there's an actual talking machine with a machine face. And they take her downstairs, and they walk her through um, these hallways to the little cells and medical rooms where they conduct their experiments and their tests and their electroshock therapy. And what I really liked about this was that all of the hallways end in these, like, obtuse angles. Yeah, Um, real nightmare stuff. And so you can never see the end of the hallway. No matter which way you're looking, the hallway just kind of curves and goes in a different direction, but it seems to never end. So you can't actually see... A way out. It's a maze. A way out. It seems to go on forever. (laughs) As an adult, I'm watching it. I'm just like, this is fucking terrifying. And then couple it with uh, all of the squeaky wheels from, I guess, these orderlies moving all of the beds back and forth between the rooms, right? And the head head orderly, I think later on we'll get to it. He's the head wheeler, isn't he? Yes. Robbie, what happens next? She's locked in the room and uh, she decides not to take a nap, you know? Um, And she, uh, she gets fascinated by light. Uh, they have electricity here. You know, if we're not in the farm in Kansas, they don't have electricity, so she turns on the lights. And then uh, she saw a reflection of a girl uh, through the door. And she gives Dorothy some uh, information uh, saying, you know, she's heard noises in the basement, right? And said that there's uh, <laughs> patients who have... Uh, there's people constantly screaming in pain... In the basement. From the basement. From the electroshock therapy. And Dorothy's just supposed to wait in this room to get that treatment, right? Um, so she's like, we got to get you out of here, but uh, we'll, uh, I'll come back for you. When this little girl arrives, like she's also nine, like she clearly doesn't work there. Uh, I guess it's 1899, so it's possible they have some nine-year-old in she, she could be like <laughs> but, uh, part of the kitchen staff or something. She could be something, but she she doesn't ever open the door. She just appears in the room. Dorothy turns around and she's suddenly there. And she only ever really sees her through reflections. Really? The movie is clearly suggesting that she's a figment of Dorothy's imagination. Well, yeah. I mean, Dorothy has a mental illness, right? Well, or Oz is real. Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> because this is a sequel to 1939 movie, it's trying to create two alternative realities. It's trying to pretend like both explanations are possible, theoretically. Yeah. She's going to be hooked up to the machine, but there's a lightning strike, the lights go out, and she escapes. That was a creepy scene, right? They they tie her down, they tie Torothy down on one of the beds with oh, that like sense of helplessness, right? She must feel, oh, so creepy. It has like the same framing device as Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. <laughs> like it's just such a weird children's film <laughs> it actually does that's unfortunate oh. after the lightning strike she escapes from the insane asylum i cannot believe this sentence like we're just describing this I, I, lo- I, I, I loved the fake out for that actually because you 
you it really does to the last second you think they're going to electrocute yeah. her again that that was the sense of dread in this scene for me and it kind of reminded me of uh, early on in the exorcist before the exorcist commits to being fully supernatural when reagan's getting all that psychiatric help and she is tied down and she's getting like she's getting electroshock therapy and holes drilled in her head and things and like and that's what's uncomfortable and this gets you right to that point where you think it's going to happen and then it, it yeah as you say lightning strikes and the power goes out but i i liked it i was like oh wow that actually had me thinking they were going to do it i love how your go-to comparison point is a film <laughs> widely considered one of the scariest films of all time like a genuine horror film <laughs> This is the only way you can describe this movie. It is. 100%. Well, and, and that's why I specifically said this is, this reminds me of Hellraiser 2 for kids. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I wrote down a note and my note is Eldritch Horrors Manifested by Cenobites. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they escape. They run out in the storm, right? And um, the head nurse, Mombi, she's chasing after them, saying, come back, right? And they're like, oh no, <laughs> the Wicked Witch is coming after us. So they decide to jump into a raging river at the sight of Mombi, uh, or the head nurse. Um, but then, again, how are we supposed to feel about this character? Because the head nurse is just screaming at them to come back, because I guess there's kids in her care. And she doesn't want them to jump into a raging river. She jumps in the river after them, trying to save them. I mean, I think there's the movie is supposed to let you interpret it as if Dorothy is insane. <laughs> That's my takeaway after rewatching it this time. And his endangering everyone That's around her. That's what it is. Yep. And maybe the little girl in the room isn't actually in the room. She escaped somehow, or she's a manifestation, like a split personality of Dorothy or something. No, it's like a fight club situation. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ozma is just Tyler Durden, the second personality. Spoilers for Fight Club and for this movie, multiple movies being spoiled. She <laughs> is in this raging river, and then at any rate, she ends up in a chicken coop being carried out to sea in the middle of an ocean. Is there an ocean in Kansas, Rob? I don't believe there is. No, pretty sure Kansas is landlocked. Um, just as a little aside, so this movie is an adaptation of two of L. Frank Baum's books. Uh, the first is called um, The Marvelous Land of Oz, which is the second book. And The Marvelous Land of Oz does not include the character of Dorothy Gale. It also is an adaptation of the third book called Ozma of Oz, which is the return of Dorothy to Oz. And in the plot of Ozma of Oz, Dorothy and her uncle Henry are uh, taking a boat to Australia. They're going to Oz? <laughs> yeah, they're literally going to Oz. <laughs> and the boat sinks. And Ooh. that is how she gets to the middle of the ocean. And then she winds up at Oz. Uh, Bobby, what happens as soon as she gets to Oz? She notices she's floating and she's in the coop with... She suddenly wakes up with Belina. Belina begins to talk. Can talk to her. And as she said, she questions that hens don't usually talk. But Belina says, well, if we were in Oz, that would be unusual, would it? And as she slowly looks around, she notices the ocean around the coop she's in is slowly drying up around her. And this is where you get, I think, Belina, if I'm not mistaken, at this point, this is her first mention of, well, I was just trying to lay an egg. So we're carrying on from the farm where Belina is unable to lay eggs. She's probably shocked in the same way that Dorothy is. And Belina's being voiced by an actor by the name of Denise Breyer. 
And she's basically the wise cracking sidekick throughout this entire film. Yeah. I have to assume that she was just improving this like Robin Williams and Aladdin. <laughs> like they brought they brought in this comedian and she was just watching the film and just like saying the first thing that came into her head. Because it, it, it kind of has a Mystery Science Theater 3000 element to it. Like, it's just somebody just, like, making sarcastic comments about everything that's going on. She's entirely a puppet, which, it's a pretty good puppet. No, it's... Oh, yeah, there's a few shots where it's a real chicken. I will say this right now. The puppetry on this chicken was fantastic. The yeah. puppetry in most of this movie is fantastic. Some of it is mind-blowing to me. Like, there there are shots when you know it is a robot chicken. You know it, and you look at it, and you're like, I mean, if I was five, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It is so well done. Do we want to talk about all the, the puppets and animatronics now, or should we wait as the characters come up? Let's just talk about them now. I was watching some behind-the-scenes stuff on this one, and I made notes. I was like, how the fuck did they get that TikTok robot to walk? That's what I have said. I said that the first time I saw this movie, the second time I saw this movie, every one of my notes is, how does TikTok work? I couldn't figure it out. It's fucking amazing. Did you watch anything? Sean? I, no. How does it work? Oh my god. Is it okay. is it like a marionette? Is it a giant marionette? No. Can, Bobby, can I say it? Go, please do, man. I, I was blown away. It is a gymnast who is... Bent over 90 degrees, literally in a ball, and that is the bottom half of TikTok and walks that thing. And then the top half is all, like, uh, robotics. So, just to describe this for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, and to be absolutely clear, everyone should see this movie. But um, yes! for anyone that hasn't, TikTok is a robot. He is a mechanical man, and he is very stout. He is quite wide, you know, He's he's got to be like three feet wide, and he's basically like a round ball on top of another round ball. He's shorter than Feruza Bulk, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she's a 10-year-old girl. But he has these legs, and the legs walk around, but the legs are so horizontally spread out that you watch it, and you're like, <laughs> how does- He's like basically squatting, wide, like, like wide-legged- squatting bent over into a ball 90 degrees and has to be strapped in because if he was to stand up in there the spinning robot parts would like hit him and get in the way so he's literally like only in the bottom half of that thing at any rate i can't i couldn't figure it out watching it i couldn't figure it out i was like i cannot see how this is being made jack Pumpkinhead is really good i i can figure that one out but i still think it's really impressive because jack Pumpkinhead is a scarecrow-esque man but who has a pumpkin for a head and a lot of the time the shots are done as a large puppet that is being controlled through wires and sticks that are being hidden from camera um, but sometimes they swap that out with a actor wearing a costume and then the actor is holding their head in such a way that you can't really tell that the costume has changed because when it's a puppet he is you can tell that there's no person in there the yeah. neck is too thin the arms are too thin but for the wide shots where they need someone to walk like run they, around they or something. clearly cannot do it as a puppet they do use an actor but it's very convincing because yeah. they have the actor stand in ways where you can't immediately tell that it looks different than the puppet and they cut back and forth so much that you're just like is that a puppet how is that puppet walking yeah. i don't understand how does it stand how does it not fall over and the way they puppet him he's like shaky all of his joints are moving 
around Janky because like it seems like he can't support the weight of its own head. And the uh, yeah, as you said, the the actor for the wide shots with him like running actually does a very good job of imitating the puppet. So uh, where are we? We still are near the beginning of the movie. Yeah, she's yeah, she's she's about to explain the deadly desert to Belina as there because she Belina's like, well, let's just. If you know where we are, let's just get out of here and leave. And she quickly realizes she's surrounded by sand and tells Belina, we have to be careful because this is the deadly desert. And if we fall in, we'll be turned to sand. Anything living that touches it turns to sand. Correct. Which just as a sentence is scary. Right? Like, you can just say the sentence and it's scary. And then later in the movie, we see it. And it's even yeah. more terrifying than oh you would God. imagine. It's like the ultimate game of the floor is lava, right? Except for the floor yeah. turns you to sand. That's exactly what I thought. Which again, yeah. as a little child, we all played floor is lava. And so yeah. we were like, oh my God, it's real. But uh, I did notice one thing. Um, the score really Mickey Mouses it here, Sean. Where uh, when she's jumping on the rocks, it's just like every single step. It's like boop, 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 yeah. yeah, it's quite nice. But we get uh, the first introduction of the gnomes, right? The rocks are all looking at her as uh, as she's jumping on them. They're like, eyes are like starting to sprout up underneath her feet and staring at her. And uh, it's- Which is- A nightmare. <laughs> fucking terrifying. Yeah. And also, another really impressive special effect. The stop motion claymation in this is- Really good. I don't know how they're compositing it, to be right. perfectly honest. They're somehow compositing claymation rocks onto the rocks that exist on the set. Because she will step onto these rocks, and then, like, as she's moving past them, as she's stepping off of them, the rocks morph using claymation into faces that are looking at her. And then you get a cut to under the crust of the earth <laughs> where the rocks are all meeting and discussing the fact that Dorothy has returned to Oz. And you hear the voice of the King of the Gnomes as he is informed yeah. not only has Dorothy returned to Oz, but she's brought with her a chicken. They're in hell. Literally, they're in hell. That's what came to mind when I was watching it. So just to quickly kind of move through this, she explores Oz a little bit. There's a lunch pail tree. She gets to her old house, which she finds because it got carried on the tornado to Oz and it crushed the Wicked Witch. And she finds the Yellow Brick Road again. But the Yellow Brick Road has been torn up, which she's very concerned about. And so she takes Belina down the Yellow Brick Road to the Emerald City. Uh, and when they get there, all hell breaks loose. Um, <laughs> Robbie, tell me about the Emerald City. The whole entirety of almost the Wizard of Oz, the first one, took place in like the span of three shots. Like the whole Wizard of Oz movie was her getting to the Emerald City. They get to the Emerald City in like three shots in this one. <laughs> well, they don't have another Wicked Witch chasing no, exactly. them. There's nothing in their yeah. way. There's no open fields. So it fields. just cuts. Yeah. But, uh, but it's like, that That was very quick. I like that one. Um, but when she gets to Oz, she sees that it's destroyed. Sorry, not Oz. Uh, the Emerald City is just, bombs went off. It's basically the Blitzkrieg. Buildings are gone. But everyone else, they're all turned to stone. So she actually comes across her best friends from the first movie, the Tin Woodsman, the Cowardly Lion, not the Scarecrow, but they're all turned to stone. But she also comes across this group of dancing girls with their heads lopped off. And this is a kid's movie. It's an entire city of, like, Hans frozen in carbonite, as everyone is just frozen in, like, these terrified screams. Yeah. And they're locked in place, turned to stone. And Dorothy's crying. She, like, goes and, like, hugs the cowardly lion. She's, like, bawling her eyes out that one of her best friends is dead. Because he's dead. Yeah. This is how the movie opens. <laughs> this is not, like, the dramatic moment near the end, where you... 
you kill off one of the characters. This isn't killing off Mufasa. This is the Lion King opening yeah. with everyone Simba has ever known being dead. It's the circle of life, except all the animals die right in the opening shot. And then it gets worse. It's <laughs> <And then> the <laughs> wheelers show up. <laughs> the wheelers are terrifying. They are. I mean, even though it's, like, under an adult's eyes, like, I'm like, oh, cool, these are just a bunch of, like, Cirque du Soleil rejects. They, as a, as a child, would have scared the life out of me, yeah. especially the lead one. Like, the way, even even though they're human, the way he goes out of his way to speak as if he's not. Uh, a little while ago, I also uh, subjected my girlfriend and her sister to watching John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> and they're not particularly big horror film fans. Oh, and oh, watching oh, oh, oh. that film, there were <sighs> moments when... My girlfriend turned to me and said, oh, my God, what is that? What is that? Oh, my God, what is that? That is exactly what happened <laughs> when the wheelers showed up. She was equally terrified. <laughs> the same reaction is the thing. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I had that reaction when I was a kid, too. Like, I, the wheelers gave me nightmares. I had nightmares from the wheelers. Minus the wheels, they, they're like something out of Silent Hill. Like yeah. the way they they move hunched over, like their movement's unnatural. The, the, yeah, the body, like the actual just physical, like mime acting, the movement of them is very impressive. Like it's just, yeah, they've got super long arms because you have to, right? Because you can't actually just be on all fours. You'd be like falling over if you had wheels, right? So uh, again, behind the scenes stuff, they've got like long extensions on their hands to get to the wheel so they can actually kind of be upright while they're wheeling along. It's so scary. But then when you actually think about it, they're so impractical. Like, they have nothing but wheels for hands. They're not actually going to be able to do anything to you if they get you. I'm so glad you said that because I was trying to put my finger on what this reminded me of. And you're absolutely right. This is Silent Hill. Like, she's walking through mm -hmm. a destroyed, dystopian wasteland version of a town she once knew. Everyone is turned to stone around her. And she's being hunted by these demonic creatures that are somehow human but also somehow mechanical you know that don't move in the same way that humans move it's very silent hill and it's a kid's movie <laughs> so she's chased by these wheelers down onto a dead end and at the dead end she finds a wall that has a keyhole in it she takes out the key that she found on her farm and she enters it into the wall and a door appears she crawls through the door just in time to escape the wheelers. Now, inside is a closet of some sorts where she sees a mechanical man covered in cobwebs that is unable to move. And we're introduced to TikTok, which is apparently, according to Robbie, a gymnast in a suit. But I still can't <laughs> visualize how the fuck that works. I think they built a mechanical man and just refused to admit it. It's an actual sentient mechanical man. Uh, he's called the Army of Oz. He's a single... He's a one-man army. He's a single-man army? The John Matrix of, law, of Oz? <laughs> I mean, you watch the movie, yes. So uh, he has these cranks attached to him, and she has to turn the cranks. She has to turn a crank for his mind. She has to turn a crank for his body. And once she turns all the cranks, he wakes up from his sleep. Sorry, Sean. One's for thinking, one's for speaking, and one's oh for <laughs> action. <laughs> and he awakens from his slumber, and he reveals to her that he was put there by the by King Scarecrow, who is the King of Oz after Dorothy left. 
And the King Scarecrow sent the key to Dorothy and sent the TikTok man to this chamber to await Dorothy's arrival because they need Dorothy to save them all from the King of the Gnomes, who has turned everyone to stone and has kidnapped the Scarecrow and brought him to his mountain off in the distance beyond the dastardly desert. I keep forgetting the name of it. What is it? Deadly Dire, desert. dire desert. <laughs> One of the really cool things about uh, TikTok uh, is that it doesn't have a mouth. But every time he talks, his mustache moves up and down to, like, accentuate the, the talking. <laughs> it's really cute. It's cool. I, I loved – I really liked TikTok. His dialogue in this movie is really good. Like, when – before they go out to the wheeler, she says, well, why didn't you get turned to stone? He says, because I am not alive. Yeah. And never will be. Thank goodness. <laughs> he says that on multiple times. He finds every opportunity to be like, I cherish the fact that I am not living. Well, the, the, the next thing I have written down is after when he goes and tortures the first wheeler and the wheeler says, you'll feel sorry for doing this to me. He says, I'm only a machine. Therefore, I cannot feel sorry for what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> and it's a kid's movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TikTok, man. The army of Oz, the John Matrix of Oz, bursts out of their chamber and using all of his skill, <laughs> defeats all of the wheelers. And Dorothy just watches, basically. Well, she gets onto the stairs because they have wheels for hands and feet. So stairs are... Their only weakness. Yeah. The perfect defense. Yeah. <laughs> no, our only weakness. Stairs! <laughs> TikTok grabs one of the wheelers and says, take me to uh, to your leader, basically. And he's, like, screaming and he wants to get away. He's so scared of her. It's a really good introduction to the character, eh? Because, like, you're so frightened of the wheelers. And then when the wheelers are scared of this unknown entity that you don't know, right? Like, what the fuck could these wheelers be scared of? Like, these are the scariest things I've ever seen. Yeah, like, what is Mombi? So they, they take him to the castle, uh, the Emerald Palace. Inside is a very beautiful woman playing some sort of stringed instrument, mandolin, something like that. Like this very haunting song. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dorothy's like, hello. And she's like, shush, let me finish playing. <laughs> and it's such like a slow introduction to this character. And she says, let me slip into something more comfortable or something along those lines. Yeah. And then she goes to her closet, which has 31 heads in it and this character then takes off her head puts it on the shelf and she says something like oh i think number 12 will be will suit me fine for today right and she just just rips off her own freaking head and then just grabs another one off the shelf and puts it on and that was the thing was my partner kind of woke up and was like, I was like, have you seen this movie? And she's like, oh yeah, Mommy's fucking terrifying. <laughs> and then Mommy, after putting on a new head, approaches Dorothy and says, ah, you're not that beautiful, but you're quite pretty in your own way. And maybe in a few years, you'll look nice and I'll take your head. But until then, I'm going to lock you in the tower so that you ripen up. And so she promises to harvest her head in a few years. Oh my God. In the tower, she meets Jack Pumpkinhead, and we'll talk about that. But one of the things I'll say is that Jack Pumpkinhead mentions that the reason why he's in the tower is that one of her heads put Jack in the tower, and then Mombi hasn't put that head on s since, and so clearly doesn't remember that Jack's in the tower. And so every head has its own memories, I guess, but they aren't the memories of the original person. Like, they're all just variations on this demonic presence. But they all have the same voice. Yeah. It's really, really quite creepy seeing all the same voice come out of all these different heads. 
I, I actually, the thing I noticed throughout this entire sequence is how this house is full of mirrors and you do yeah. not clock the camera or the crew or anything once. Yeah. Is- well, even in TikTok, like at later at the end, he's very shiny. You don't see a reflection of the camera in it. He gets C-3PO'd at the end. That's exactly what I said yeah, too. It's the end of a new home. <laughs> They're all shiny and new and they have a metal ceremony. Um, but yeah, you never see the camera. This and this specifically, like the entire fucking house is mirrors and gold surfaces, and that's what I noticed. I was like, this is beautifully shot. Walter Mulch, is that his name? The director? Merch. Merch? This is the only film he ever made. Yeah. Well, he edited many films yes. and he went on to win Oscars. Uh, He's got he four edited, Oscars. <laughs> he edited The English Patient. Um, he actually was co editor on Tomorrowland from just a few yep. years ago. He. Has one other directing credit. I don't know if you looked this up. Mm. Do you know what his other Mm. directing credit is? No. It is an episode from season four of The Clone Wars. Really? One episode? Now, to to be fair, I mean, I don't care how much flack I get for this. That show is really good. (laughs) It is. I I have actually watched it twice. Uh, That show is actually quite good. You've gone through the whole show twice? I've gone. We've gone through Clone Wars twice and I've gone through Rebels twice as well because Rebels is a direct sequel. Yeah. To Clone Wars. Um, and, with, and without Clone Wars, we do not get Dave Filoni, which means we do not get The Mandalorian. So I will sing the praises of Clone Wars. So if he had a hand in season four, and it's one of those shows that it gets considerably better as the seasons go on. I was not disparaging it. I just think it's just so random. Yeah, I should uh, I'm, Yeah, I should now watch all of the Clone Wars just to get <laughs> this guy's one episode. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 seems, it seems random, but he's been in with George Lucas yeah, since day one. So fair. it was probably like, oh yeah, sure. Like you haven't done anything since Return to Oz. Sure, I'll throw you a bone. I don't I don't care. <laughs> you haven't done anything since Return to Oz. <laughs> Other than yeah. winning four Oscars. Yeah. Like, he's done a lot of things, but he just hasn't yeah. had another directing credit. Yeah. And I suspect I suspect it's, it's a combination of this movie bombing horribly, but also just from the behind the scenes that I've read. Uh, yeah. He had an extremely negative experience making it. It was extremely stressful. He was fired at one point and then was rehired. He probably he was fired a week into filming. Like, <laughs> yeah, he probably is traumatized from making this film. And then it did horribly. And he's just like, no, I'm done. Thanks. I was considered a good editor. I'll go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is too bad because like we're saying this movie is really good. So they're trapped in the tower of Mombi. And she meets uh, Jack Pumpkinhead. All right. Tell me about Jack Pumpkinhead. Jack Pumpkinhead uh, is this, as you said, voiced by Brian Henson, but he's just this sweet, soft-spoken. He looks terrifying because he's a scarecrow, right? Like, and his proportions are way off. He's way too tall. His head's way too big. And But he's the most sweetest, soft-spoken character in the whole film. And he insists on calling Dorothy Mom. That's the weirdest part. And again, we're getting into Walter Murch. Why was this movie considered to be so scary? And he's like, I don't know. How about one of a million decisions you made, like Jack Pumpkinhead constantly referring to a nine-year-old girl as Mom (laughs) and crying out, save me, Mom, save me, in one of the most disturbing voices you can possibly imagine. It's a nightmare. She even says, I'm not your mom. And he says, you know, can I still call you mom, even if it's not so? (laughs) She just like says, she smiles and says, okay. Like, it's so, so creepy. But just, just for a second, put yourself in Dorothy's shoes. (laughs) 
You have been locked in a tower by a demon mombi who has 31 heads and has promised that you will be 32. You find a giant talking scarecrow jack-o'-lantern, and the jack-o'-lantern oh continues God. to go, Mommy, Mommy, <laughs> Mommy. It's a nightmare. And this is a kid's movie. Oh, it's so good. So it's so good. They come up with a plan to get out of there. Because uh yeah, uh Jack says um that he doesn't remember anything before he was born, uh, but his mom made him to scare mommy to drive her away, right? But uh, with uh this powder of life. So it's power powder that you sprinkle on something and it makes things come alive. But he says this powder of life must be surely be kept in uh cupboard number thirty-one, uh her original head, right? She uh Dorothy and TikTok and Jack devise a plan that Dorothy is going to go down to the cupboard while Mombi is sleeping, steal the key from her and open up one of these closets that has a severed human head in it. But this one closet has a mirror on it, which makes it even scarier. Everything else you can see right in. You could see the heads. They're like, as Dorothy's walking in the original scene towards the closet, they're all staring at her. They follow her eyes, but something's behind the mirror door. And you're just like, what the fuck's behind that mirror door? First of all, Mombi isn't sleeping. Mombi's headless torso is sleeping. And it's like making weird noises. It's almost snoring, but it's like doesn't have a nose. So it's some sort of guttural throat snoring. She's coming down this hallway and all of the heads are lined up in a row. And then you get to the last cupboard. And instead of a glass cupboard showing a head, it's mirrored <laughs> showing Dorothy's head. Yeah. And so you get this foreshadowing that Dorothy is going to be the next head oh. that will go in this cupboard. And she opens it up. And this is the funniest part. Like, I openly laughed when this happens because she opens it up and it it looks like a, a high school gym locker <laughs> where, like, Mombi has just thrown a bunch of crap in there. Like, there's just, you know, like her, her science textbooks. There's, like, a couple of sandwiches and this vial of, like, powder of life and then her original head in the one corner. And it's like, why does she hate that head? It's not on a pedestal. It's just chucked in the corner. Every other head gets a velvet pedestal. <laughs> well, I think it's because she's vain, right? She didn't like her, what she looked like. Uh, yeah, I, I totally back Rob on that. It's that she... She she says she wants to stay young and beautiful forever, and so she she resents that head, which is why she doesn't want to look at it. Um, I read too again IMDb trivia. One of you guys, I would have to go back and rewatch it. Um, the room that Nurse Mombi locks Dorothy in is room thirty one. Yes, and that is the yep. room that is the head cabinet that Mombi's original head is kept in. Ah, see, there you go again. I didn't notice that one, but again, it's all in Dorothy's head. She's insane. She takes the powder of life. And head 31 wakes up. Yeah, she, she, cause she's like a 10 year old girl. She happens to just knock some of the garbage that's in the, in the locker over and the head wakes up. And then the head in the most terrifying oh way starts yelling, Dorothy girl. <laughs> and then every other head wakes up and yells, Dorothy girl. That's the single scariest part to me. I, I, 100%. That's the scariest part of the whole movie. Oh, that's the scariest part to you? How about the moment after that when the headless torso <laughs> leaps out of bed and starts chasing her? <sighs> Through the glass castle. 
So no matter which way she looks, all she can see is a headless torso behind her. Oh my god. Yeah, I don't know, those screams, those screams though, like I still remember them. Like I, I as they were coming up, I knew what was happening, I could hear the sounds. I could still hear it, because I've seen it so many times. And like, that's, oh, it creeped me so much. But yeah, as the torso sits up in bed, the headless torso, and she's like, what the fuck is happening? Uh, all right so she runs up to the top of the tower she has this uh powder of life she locks the door to the tower and they're going to use this powder of life to bring to life a flying creature and the flying creature has three parts three major parts to it one is a sofa (laughs) two is like a bunch of palm fronds that are going to be wings And three is a moose head that they get from the mantelpiece, which is going to be the head of this creature that will be part of what brings it life. So they put those pieces together. A moose of a different color. That's a 1939 Oz reference. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. Um, uh, They put the powder onto it and it comes to life and it describes itself as a gump. And it says, oh, last thing I remember, I was walking through the forest and then I heard a loud noise. Now I'm here, and I have wings, and I'm a sofa. <laughs> but what I what I thought was going to happen in this scene was because the Gump's head is mounted on something very similar to the rest of Mombi's heads, I thought they're going to give Mombi's head the moose head and just fly out the window. <laughs> and I was, oh, I, I was like, because I was like, the way this film is going, this has to happen. This is going to be amazing. I like the flying couch. Little let down by the fact that they didn't put the gump head on Mombi. Like, because that would have been true, like, body horror at its <laughs> finest. Um, there is a really nice throwaway line here, too, that um, Dorothy gives when she comes up and TikTok is just spouting nonsense and rocking back and forth. Belina, and she, she winds her up and Belina says, I don't understand. Oh, yeah. How is he still talking if his thinking was wound down? And Dorothy says, oh, it happens to people all the time. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. No, I really liked that. That's yeah. a great line. It captures... Dorothy as this intelligent child beyond her years, as someone who understands people, who understands social relationships, who understands the world more than you would expect a nine-year-old to. Because you're living in this fantasy where at the end of this movie, they're all going to be like, Dorothy, you should be queen. Which is ridiculous, but, yeah, you know, you can almost buy it when you have this character kind of throw away these throwaway lines like that that are just like, ah, it's this this person's wise beyond their years. Very much so. All right, so where are we? Okay, so they've they've magic magicified the Gump, <laughs> who now has wings. Yep. He's like, oh, I guess I got wings now. Um, uh, and then they push him out the window. Yeah, Mombi grabs her original head. She grabs head 31, so we're back to the scary nurse from the beginning. Yeah. Because she doesn't have the key anymore. Right, so she smashes it. That's the other thing. The headless, the freaking headless torso smashes that mirror and grabs her own head back. And yeah, chases her out of the tower. Uh, they push this flying sofa out the window. And she's like, flap your wings. I didn't have wings before. So they fly the gump to the mountain. They go over the... Dire, dire desert. You you get to see the deadly desert in action because the wheelers chase in, after in her. In a scene very reminiscent of 1939's Wizard of Oz, uh, the Wicked Witch sends all the monkeys. Uh, she sends all the wheelers to go chase after uh, this flying sofa and Dorothy Gale. <laughs> um, and so they're flying through the air. They're looking down. 
And uh, you see just like this horde of wheelers chasing after them on the ground. Right. And then they get to the dire, dire desert. And <laughs> deadly they get, desert. They get to the deadly desert. And one of the wheelers <laughs> falls into the deadly desert and is turned to sand. I think it's actually like five or six fallen, but they only yeah. throw the one. Oh, really? Okay. It's, it, 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 yeah, Dorothy racks up a decent body count in this film. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, like that is, that's payoff because you, you, they talk about it and then you get the payoff of, and even though the wheeler is bad, as a kid, that would have been really scary. Because she says any, anything living touches it turns to sand. And then you see it happen and you realize what could have happened. It looks horrifying. It look because it turns to sand and then crumbles. And it's so well done. It's basically that scene in Resident Evil where the lasers like cubify a man, <laughs> but it's a kid's movie. Is that your catchphrase now? <laughs> yeah. It's a kid's movie. So they get to the mountain. And just as they get to the mountain, uh the ropes all fall apart, the flying sofa crumbles. There's the whole there's the there's the whole scary scene with uh Jack losing his head, which is what causes everything to crumble. We didn't talk about the part when Jack We can't talk about every moment of the movie, guys. We gotta get sorry. through <laughs> No no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But back in the tower, the first time you meet Jack, he's just like Could you check my head for weak spots? I'm afraid I'm going to spoil. And I haven't seen much of this world. And you're just like, what the fuck is happening right now? This little girl has to, like, nurture this pumpkin skeleton head back to health. Yeah. It's, ugh. This, this skeleton pumpkin head who is discussing the nature of mortality with this nine-year-old girl. As he says, yeah. I don't want to die before I've seen more of this world. <laughs> it's fucking <gasps> horrifying. Scary things happen. They get to the mountain. Let's talk about the mountain. Can we talk about the mountain? Right. The last of the mountain. The mountain is like a half an hour, like the last act of the film, right? Right. Well, let's just get through it. So they get to the mountain, and that's where all of the uh, gnomes are. The gnomes, not G N O M E S. I think it's just spelled N O M E S. Yeah, I think it said. Yeah, he he changed it. Yeah, he changed it for the book. And they're basically just manifestations of rock. I guess the way that they're presented in the movie, they're not even like rock creatures. You know, like they're not even, I'm going to say golems, but people will think I'm referencing the Jewish folklore, but I was actually thinking <laughs> of Pokemon. But um, <laughs> so they get to the mountain and the Gnome King is informed that they have all arrived there, but the chicken is nowhere to be seen. And the reason the chicken is nowhere to be seen is that the chicken is actually hiding inside Jack Pumpkin's head. Jack Pumpkinhead's head. <laughs> the head of Jack Pumpkinhead. Uh, because it's hollow. Because it's a fucking hollow jack-o'-lantern head. And so the Gnome King thinks he's finally outsmarted them because he doesn't have that chicken there. We don't really yet know the importance of the chicken. We don't know why the Gnome we King is all. worried about the chicken. But he thinks the chicken is gone. So he then brings them all down into his lair. So he opens up the mountain and they fall, fall down under the mountain, into the mantle itself. And you hear the reason why the Gnome King invaded Oz. Because they took all his emeralds. I gotta say, it's not unreasonable. I mean, it's sort of unreasonable. He murdered everybody because they took his emeralds. <sighs> okay, yes. But apparently, people of the Emerald City went to this mountain and uh, stole all of the Gnome King's emeralds. And he just took what it was his back. But Dor Dorothy says to him, like, but you have so many. Yep. And he says that's not the yep. point. That's uh, not the point. And I, I liked that. I mean, if for if for a second, it like lives you because he he almost comes across as reasonable, but then you realize he's a, a dick, and Robbie's point is suddenly invalid. It's basically a a metaphor for mate, late nineteenth century capitalism. Like this is the Gilded Age era. 
where the wealthy had everything and they always wanted more. And that's what it is. He says, they took my emeralds. And she says, but I'm looking around and you have so many. And he's like, that's not the point. Hmm. I want all of them. They were mine. Which I think now is the time to bring something up. So I want to talk about this interpretation of Oz as a populist allegory. So this was first popularized by a high school teacher by the name of Henry Littlefield. And he wrote an essay called The Wizard of Oz, A Parable on Populism in 1964. And it was published in American Quarterly. And he put forward this thesis that the books are a satirical allegory for late 19th century politics, particularly the bimetallism priorities of the Democratic Party. What does that mean? I'm going to get to that. So in <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 1896, William Jennings Bryan ran for president against William McKinley, who was the Republican candidate. And at the time, a lot of farms were in debt and a lot of farms were going broke. They had been going through boom and bust depressions. You were getting early versions of the Great Depression where some of the farms were getting overtaken by sand because they weren't doing a good job of uh, husbandry at the time. And so you were losing out on tillable soil. Basically, all the nutrition gets weeded out of it and just turns to sand. Exactly. And so the farms were going bust. And one of the priorities of the Democratic Party at the time, which was very rural in nature because it was the Southern Democrats, um, was to try to decrease the value of the dollar in order to decrease the value of these mortgages because the bankers held all of these mortgages on the farms. And the way they were going to do that was to change America from a gold standard to a bimetallist standard. And so instead of having the dollar pinned to gold, the dollar would be pinned to both gold and silver. This would depreciate the dollar. It would be a bailout for farmers at the cost of bankers. L. Frank Baum was apparently a big supporter of William Jennings Bryan. Uh, there are records of him campaigning for the Democratic Party at the time. You look at The Wizard of Oz through those terms. And you have a Kansas farmer mm -hmm. who is presented with a yellow brick road to an emerald city. You have the visual of gold being presented to take you to a city that controls all of the green, the greenbacks. Huh. She then can confront the wizard of this entire land, which is named Oz. Oz at the time being OZ, a acronym for ounce, which was how silver was measured. Her allies are a cowardly lion, a scarecrow that doesn't have a brain, and a tin man, which are metaphors for Southern politicians. Hmm. They are either cowards, unable to move and do anything, or don't have a brain and can't help out. And the way that she solves her problems and brings, uh, you know, the wealth back home to Kansas is with silver shoes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Ruby slippers. The original was silver slippers. L. Frank Baum never actually said any of this publicly, which is why some people believe, oh, you're just reading too much into it. But personally, I think it makes way too much sense. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of things to, to add up. <laughs> and when I was watching this, I think it also makes sense viewing all of these characters through that kind of like late 19th century political prism of satire. And so you have this character who 
controls all of the rubies and gold and silver, and he's mad because one of the powerful forces took his rubies and gold and silver away, and so he's he's taking it out on all of the population. Like, it's just these two capitalists arguing, and everyone else is suffering from it. And the way that she solves it, spoiler alert, is that she kills him with eggs, farm produce. The solution to the problem is good old-fashioned Kansas farming. <laughs> uh, that's what I thought of when this uh, this rock guy was complaining about how he doesn't have any more me- emeralds. <laughs> anyway, that's my little weird little rant. Uh, Robbie, tell me what happens next. <laughs> After that, um, the Gnome King says – oh, actually, when they land in the Gnome King's lair and is <laughs> basically in hell, um, she runs uh, – Dorothy runs into the Scarecrow. Uh, and immediately Scarecrow and Dorothy see each other. There's a flash of lightning, kind of a callback to the, uh, uh, doctor and his electrical. There's a flash of lightning, a crack of thunder, and, uh, the Scarecrow disappears. And Dorothy's like, where'd my friend go? And the Gnome King says to her, I've been meaning to turn him into an ornament, but you coming back here just reminded me. Thanks for that. Such, like, tremendous weight to put on this 10-year-old girl, right? And so Dorothy wants to get uh, the Scarecrow back. The Gnome King, in his devious ways, devise a plan. He says, yeah, well, if the Scarecrow is so important to you, you must be willing to risk something to get him back, right? And she blindly agrees. And so they have uh, – he's kind of devised a game. He has a room of trinkets, ornaments. The characters, the <laughs> – the Gump, which is now no longer uh, a flying sofa, just a sofa. And he's embarrassed to be a sofa, too. They have to go into this trinket room, and they have to touch one of the trinkets and say the word Oz, and they get three chances. And if Scarecrow is one of the trinkets, he will turn back to his Scarecrow form, and they'll get to leave. But we find out if not, after your three guesses, they get turned into a trinket too. Uh, they play a game of death, essentially. He's like, will you wager your life? Yeah. And she says, that's not fair. And he said, well, you said you were willing to risk something and you never actually asked what yeah. it was. She has to pick a trinket that used to be the scarecrow. And it's not like it looks like the scarecrow. The scarecrow has been turned into a random yeah. ornament. And if she picks wrong three times, she gets turned into an ornament. Same with her friends. Wait, but she she's the last one to go in. So she gets to watch all of her friends die. In front of her. And she hears them. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you hear the lightning bolt and she realizes she's the last to go in. And she gets slightly grilled by the Gnome King by saying, are you sure? Like, why did are you sure you came back for your friends? Are you sure it wasn't for these? We haven't talked about uh, the Gnome King claymation yet. The, the Gnome King claymation is good. but And he slowly but surely becomes more human. As more people turn. When she first meets the Gnome King, he is claymation in the rocks, much like the rest of the gnomes that we have seen. After the Scarecrow is turned into an ornament, he becomes a anthropomorphic claymation, like a model, like a man made out of actual rock, and he has a throne. And as he's talking with Dorothy and her friends go in to play this game of death and then are murdered in front of her and she hears them die, (laughs) 
the gnome king becomes more and more human. And in fact, there's a moment when the camera suddenly goes, does a close up and it's clearly oh, yeah. a man with makeup. His eyes. And the first time I saw that, I was like, that's haunting, but also weird. Like, why did it suddenly change to a person in makeup? It seems it's jolting. And at first I felt like it was a mistake or perhaps an artistic choice that didn't work. But then you see that it's actually a gradual process, and every time one of her friends is turned into a trinket, he becomes more human, and he becomes more of a person in makeup and less of a claymation creation. And I thought it was amazing, because every single step of the way, it looks great. Even as a person in makeup, you're like, that looks amazing. That's really good makeup. Mm-hmm. It's more haunting, because as Rob said, you can you can see the human eyes, and that he's becoming human, but he's still... There, there's still something inhuman about yeah. it. Yeah, the the eyes is what got me this time when I was watching it. When it cut to like the flash of lightning, and he turns into the like, human in makeup, and you could see the whites of his eyes, opposed to just being like rocks or whatever it was. Oh, it's so good. Creepy. And uh, yeah, he, he reveals, he says, you sure? So he says, did you come back for your friends or did you come back for these? And he, now that he's a human and he pulls up his robe, he's been wearing the ruby slippers the whole time. Because she says earlier in the film, like, why don't you just click your, someone says, what happened to your slippers? She said, I lost them along the way. They fell on the mountain and he found them. And he explains to her that with the help of the slippers, he was really, he was able to take over Oz and get back his emeralds. So it's led to believe that Dorothy is the result, the reason why Oz was destroyed. Yeah. Or uh, Emerald City was destroyed and all her friends are dead. And much like Preston Waters, it's because she <laughs> cannot keep track of her possessions. <laughs> Where are your ruby slippers? We thought we told you. To keep track of your possessions. But he gives her the option. He gives, right? he gives like, her the option. I will send you home and you can forget that all of this ever happened and you'll forget all about Oz. That you've killed all of your friends. Because as we know, the Gnome King is being played by the same actor playing the Doctor. This is a tie back to the beginning of the film where he's going to hook her up to electroshock therapy and she'll forget that any of this ever happened. And later in the film, he presents her with exactly the same option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to be fully honest at this point. I didn't really pay that much attention to Mobby's head because you're more just focused on the horror of her being a witch. It wasn't until this scene that I actually realized, oh, the nurse is Mombi and this is the doctor. Really? That's th- because I was just enjoying it so much. And, it, and when I clicked in, I was like, oh, great. I just I like this even more now. Wait, you brought up Mombi. I forgot. This entire time that they're playing this game of death, Mombi is on a chariot being wheeled by the wheelers underground tunnel as she's whipping them, just screaming faster. Like it, it, it is, it is basically a Guar concert. It's amazing. <laughs> it is it's so. Sc- I, I would, I would say that it doesn't really have a plot purpose. So I'm not sure we need to discuss it that much. But I will agree. The fact that they keep cutting to her whipping her wheelers as they are drawn in this underground tunnel underneath the deadly desert is, it's, it's really quite intense. Yeah. And so yeah, Dorothy takes the option to save her friends. She gets inside the room. She sees that TikTok is frozen in place and thinks, oh, his action wound down. But TikTok says, pretend that I'm frozen. I've done this on purpose so that you can watch me make my last choice and you will hopefully get a clue as to where the king might be. This is my favorite part of the movie. Really? It's so fucking disturbing. This movie is so dark because TikTok has one guess left and he's come up with a plan that might save them all. And his plan is he's pretended to have no action so that Dorothy can come in and can watch him die. Because he says, I know I'm going to fail and I'm going to (laughs) die. But if you watch what happens when I die, 
that might give you a clue as to what I was turned into, which might help you figure out where Scarecrow is, and you can win this game, and you will survive. And so he goes over, and he touches one of the ornaments, and he looks to her, and he says, Oz, <laughs> and there's a flash of light, and then it doesn't work. <laughs> Because he's turned into an ornament in some random fucking place. Uh, well, yeah, the flash of lightning, like, basically the lights go out and he's gone. And she's like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what he turned into. That didn't help at all. She just basically watched her friend die. Like, we heard them die, right? The crack of lightning or the thunder. It's so dark. Is, you actually see it. And this is a kid's oh. movie. <laughs> I like the setup as to how she finds how she finds Scarecrow, though, is because she again they leave you hanging because it's this film. They want you to believe that she is going to fail, and she fails her first two guesses. Well, she almost fails her third. She almost fails her third, but she. I liked the little. She just goes with her instincts and just trusts in herself, which is you know a nice a nice arc in any kids movie. Um, it is it, it, it is possibly the most kids movie aspect of this kids movie. That is the rest of it isn't just like psychological body horror. But it's it's kind of. Uh... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade bit she has to choose wisely at the very end. Well, sort of. I mean, Last Crusade, though, it has, there's the intellectual twist where it's the cup of a carpenter, so it's the ugliest one. Yeah. In this one, she trusts her, she literally closes her eyes, she spins around four times, and then she just holds out her hand and walks blindfolded forward she grabs an ornament and then she's about to say oz for her last guess but as she picks it up she knocks over a different ornament and she looks at that one and for whatever reason it has a pull towards her and then at the last moment she switches them mm -hmm. and she puts down the one in her hand and she picks up the other one and she says oz and then it turns into the scarecrow because it was correct and she realizes when she did that that the thing that she picked up was an emerald diamond and so she looks around and she sees there's only a couple other emerald things. Can we talk about Scarecrow now? We can. <laughs> his, his face is pretty scary because it doesn't move. Yeah, that's one way of saying it. I did read that the um, budget cuts, he originally was meant to be fully animatronic. And when it came down to it, they were like, nope. And so they're like, all right, well, just terrifying eyes that never blink and never sleep. This is the man that rules the kingdom. Well, because this is the most terrifying way to present the Scarecrow. He basically looks like a victim of the Joker <laughs> because he has a unending smile on his face. This giant grin as he's literally in a dungeon where he's been chained up for who knows how long, how long time passes in Oz. Then he's been turned into an ornament and... He is unable to show any of that emotion because he has this frozen look of clownish glee on his face. It's good. <laughs> so after this, uh, she then realizes that the trick is, is that all the people turned into ornaments are emerald ornaments. And so they go through and they find all the emerald ornaments and she rescues her friends. Now, while this is happening, the king of the gnomes goes, oh, fuck that shit. And then he tears down all the walls. He's like, you weren't supposed to win. I'm now going to eat you all because I'm a giant rock man. They rip the gump's head off, but he eats the sofa, like the body of the gump. And he's like, nom, 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 <laughs> Dorothy friends. And then he picks up uh, Jack Pumpkinhead and he's going to eat Jack Pumpkinhead. And he picks it up and he lifts it up to his mouth. And just then the chicken 
in his head <laughs> finally lays an egg. She's so scared, she basically eggs herself. Because they're about to be thrown into basically the Temple of Doom <laughs> chasm. By the end of it, he's just this giant rock monster yeah with this huge gaping maw and there's just like devil flames coming up behind him as he's like trying to eat <laughs> he's trying to eat dorothy's friends <sighs> but the egg falls into his throat and he stops and he looks at her and he says don't you know that eggs are poison and then he crumbles and everything around them crumbles. All of the gnomes flee because the gnome king has been killed by this egg. She gets the ruby slippers from the wreckage of the gnome king. And she wishes for all of her friends to go back to Emerald City and the Emerald City to go back to the way it was. And everyone who was turned to stone to come back to life. And she basically undoes, undoes all of the destruction that has occurred since she left Oz the first time. And then, as we said, you cut to um, the New Hope Empire, the New, the New Hope ending where it's the parade and everyone's getting their medals. TikTok is C-3PO'd up. The Gump even has a medal and has been mounted on a wall in the throne room. And then Dorothy looks in the mirror in the throne room and she sees Ozma. And she goes to the mirror and she touches the mirror and Ozma steps out of the mirror and reveals that she has been locked in the mirror world, I guess, by, I think it's the Gnome King, right? This was part of the whole process. Mombi. Mombi uh, did it. She, that's what, yeah, he All right. promises Mombi that she can stay young and beautiful. Yeah. If she locks Ozma in the mirror. Okay. I guess that's... Uh... The, the trade-off, right? That's why Mommy's working with the Gnome King is because he gives her the- 31 heads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She gave her the power with the ruby slippers to basically switch heads. Right. So she releases Ozma from her prison, and Ozma is another nine-year-old girl. It's not the same actor, but, you know, it is her it's other- It's the same actor. No, it's not. It's a different actor. As the orderly? Oh, sorry. It's the it's the orderly. I'm just saying it's not Dorothy. Yeah. Like we're oh, not saying it, yeah, it's, it's actually Dorothy. yeah. Dorothy's reflection. It's a different actor than yeah, Dorothy. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And um, Ozma is the rightful queen of Oz, and so she takes her throne. And Dorothy says she needs to go back to her family in Kansas again. And Ozma says, "Well, anytime you want to come back to us, I'm going to be watching over you, and I will come to you." And see if you need any assistance. And they send her back to Kansas. And she wakes up by the river uh, that she originally fell into. Her Aunt Em and Uncle Henry and Toto finds her. And uh, Aunt Em reveals that lightning struck the insane asylum and burned it down. And everyone got out okay except for the doctor who died trying to <laughs> save his machines. <laughs> Like the dork he is. What a loser. <laughs> they go back home, and Dorothy can finally sleep at night. Uncle Henry has finished the house, and they live happily ever after. That's it. The end, right? Did I miss anything? Yeah. Uh, Belina, Belina stays in Oz because she says she doesn't oh, want to yeah. come home and get turned into a stew. <laughs> okay, yeah. Belina stays in Oz. Okay. Uh, that's the movie. Um, it's awesome. It's a really awesome I film. I agree. I yeah, I mean I'll I'll jump to it right now. This this jumped to my number one. This is number one for you. Wow. Is, I, okay. I, I I kind of regret not seeing it as a kid, but watching it uh, as an adult now. I yeah, everything we said. I really dug it. It's really dark. Um, really like if I was a kid, it would have been scary. But as an adult, I could appreciate it. Everything is the production value is so well. It's just so high, and it's not that I'm just like rooting for the underdog. Like I genuinely enjoyed this film quite a bit. Uh, no, I completely agree. As I said, I've seen it. 
twice now. The first time I liked it, but I was more perplexed at how this ever got made. <laughs> I've seen it 20 times and I'm still perplexed how it got made. Knowing what to expect, I I think it's a legitimately good film. It, it's very labyrinth, like you said. It's dark, but it's dark in that weird 80s kids way. Because it's a kid's movie. <laughs> all right, Rob, uh, where are you going to rank this movie? Clearly, this is my favorite out of all the movies we've watched. It's number one, without question. Um, I love this movie. All right. Well, I don't uh, entirely disagree with both of you. I do think it's a pretty great film. I'm going to give it a slightly different ranking just to kind of switch it up a bit. I'm going to put this, I think, at three. I'm going to put it below Darby and below Flight of the Navigator. But I think it's a strong three. Uh, That's fair. This is... A very I mean, good film. Fair. Okay, so when we watched this, I f- finished this movie, Bobby watched this movie, and then Bobby texts me and he says, P.S. <laughs> I also watched. You're the result of this, Bobby. This is your fault. P.S. I also watched Oz the Great and Powerful. So we can also <laughs> do that one if you want. And I went, oh my God. I started watching it last night. Have you seen it before, Rob? I've seen it before. I saw it in theaters. Uh, I'm sorry. And I was trying to think, I'm like, now I have to watch Oz the Great and Powerful so we can talk about that too. And I thought, that's going to be way too much. We can't do two, both of those movies. Like it's going, the episode will be too long. Our recording will be too long. And then I watched the film and I said, oh no, we can do two movies because I don't have anything to say about this film other than one thing. I fucking hate it. It's not great. I mean- Fact. It's, I mean, I didn't like hate it as much as you did. I was just kind of like, it's just, for me, it was just kind of middle of the road bad. Like I didn't expect anything of it and it didn't deliver. So I, I mean, it it was bad. I've seen worse movies, but I didn't enjoy it. So just a little background of it. We're going to go quickly through this for anyone listening. This is not going to be a thorough discussion like we just did for Return to Oz. But Oz the Great and Powerful came out in 2013. Return to Oz is Walt Disney making a sequel to the 1939 film. Oz the Great and Powerful is Walt Disney making a prequel to the 1939 film. So they're doing a temporal pincer attack, as Christopher Nolan would call it. <laughs> One thing I did notice, though, uh, because we just rewatched this movie, um, Oz the Great and Powerful actually takes place in 1905. So out of continuity, because this place takes uh, this movie, Return to Oz takes place two months before the turn of the century. They actually say that in the doctor's office. So it's it's really supposed to be a prequel, but it takes place five years after Return to Oz. I am just going to prop that up to it being a terrible movie that there you go. makes no sense. And the creators didn't know what they were doing. Um, That's fact. The reason why Return to Oz takes place just before the turn of the century is that the book Wizard of Oz came out in 1900. And so the book Wizard of Oz is set basically in 1899. So if you have a movie that takes place six months before that, or six months after that, it's still presumably around 1899, just before the turn mm-hmm. of the century. So 1905 makes no sense to do a prequel. No, none. No. The, this movie came out in 2013. Uh, it was produced by... Uh, Joe Roth, and it was part of his series of let's do mature, dark, modern, live-action interpretations of these old children's films, because he also did the Alice in Wonderland remake. He also did- I was going to say, this is literally them trying to make another Alice in Wonderland. He did Maleficent. He was doing all of these things around this time. It's directed by Sam Raimi, who uh, it breaks my heart a little bit because I love Sam Raimi. And this is actually one of the few Sam Raimi films I hadn't seen 
And I had always kind of meant to see it. It was on my list because I was like, oh, I should get around to seeing that one of these days. I'm sure it's not bad. I'm sure it's interesting. It's It broke my heart. Uh, and the reason why it broke my heart is that it stars James Franco as Oz. James Franco has to give one of the worst performances I have ever seen in a large-scale blockbuster film. I wouldn't actually call it a performance. Like, legitimately. Yeah, like, what What are you saying? Like, it's just because he's just, like, saying words that they're feeding him? Like, he's not playing a character. A hundred percent. He's not playing a character. Honestly, it feels like if James Franco rolled out of bed and said, where's the script? What's my line? Okay, this is how I say it. You get one take. And, like, it just veers wildly between different scenes. But with a baseline of, like, you get plus or minus three percent out of me. That's all it is. Like, he's not doing anything in this film whatsoever. You know, there's been a lot of stories recently about James Franco being a pretty shitty person in real life. And I gotta say, it makes it easy when shitty actors <laughs> are also shitty people, because I really don't feel bad disparaging this awful, awful performance. Watching it, I thought, no one could possibly give a worse performance than this. And then Mila Kunis shows up. <laughs> Now, I have nothing against Mila Kunis. I've seen her in other things where she's fine. But, you know, this high fantasy period style piece is not in her wheelhouse because she is almost worse than James Franco. When your direction is, okay, here you are in a period piece looking like Carmen Sandiego wearing leather pants. Uh, you're in love with James Franco. Okay, that's your whole character motivation going. Mean, the- and James Franco's giving you the performance he gave at the Oscars. Like, what do you have to play against? What the fuck do you do with that? I'm sure she was like, I mean, cool, if he doesn't have to try, why the fuck do I? And it's not just her, so I'm not trying to hold it against her, because there are at least two genuinely great actors in this. Rachel Weisz is in it, and Michelle Williams is in it. Both of them are fantastic yes. actors. And in fact, I like Zach Braff, and he's in it. Michelle Williams and Rachel Weisz are also giving bad performances. I don't think they're as bad as James Franco and Mila Kunis, but they definitely showed up to work, and they're like, oh, fuck, we're in a bad movie. I'm not trying. Because they are... It's a yeah. bad script. It's owning a- everything in, but I just... Okay, let's, let's, let's just address the elephant in the room. How much of this is new technology, new not knowing what to do when you have no props, no nothing, it's just you on a green screen? This is 2013. Okay, this is not Attack of the Clones 2002. I mean, Avatar's already come up by this point and proved that, like, you could do that and be massively successful. Avatar was four years before this. Avatar was 2009. This movie went into production well after Avatar. This is not nobody knows how to act against a green screen. This this isn't a case of that. This is a case of nobody gives a fuck. This is a paycheck. You know, there's very little interesting stuff that Sam Raimi is doing, too. You can tell they let him do some of his Sam Sam Raimi stuff in the weird camera angles there i mean it looks terrible in the beginning but it's got the point of view of those stupid snapping dragon things but it's really bad and it's not there and there's a couple of other pov shots which is like that's a sam Raimi music sam Raimi music i mean the beginning was what letterbox no not letterbox uh, it's it's much smaller it's 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 which is another thing that was another thing was this movie was just so middle of the road bad and boring and didn't really try in any regard was it's like oh look we're gonna do it on this small vignette and 
put a sepia tone over it, but we're not really going to try and make it look old timey and we're not going to put a filter over it or anything. And then, you know, you're like, oh, so as soon as he gets to Oz, it's going to go full widescreen. And then it just, okay, looks terrible. As I said, I watched this in theaters. I watched this in theaters on a big screen. The moment when they went to color and it went from being standard frame to full widescreen actually was very effective on a huge screen. Okay, fair enough. Because uh, I can't comment on that. I saw it on my screen and I thought it looked, uh, you know, color seeps into it and the, you know, 1.33 to 1 slowly expands as it goes into like, you know, CinemaScope or whatever. And all I could think about was in the 1939 Wizard of Oz uh, directed by Victor Fleming, when they go to color, that shot of mm-hmm. Dorothy going through the door is not only gorgeous, it's kind of a mind-blowing shot that was done incredibly creatively because the way they did that shot, it's all shot in black and white at the beginning with a sepia tone thrown on it. And then they start in the house where it's black and white. They start on Dorothy and she's black and white they follow her through the door and as soon as she steps through the door they come into color and it's all in one shot and suddenly she's in color and the way they did that was they painted the house black and white on the inside yeah and they had a second actress wearing a black and white costume oh my God. with black and white makeup on that was turned away from the camera basically a, a stand in for Judy Garland And the camera followed this stand-in, and then they did a Texas switch as the camera went past her shoulder, and then Judy Garland wearing an actual color outfit steps out in front. And it's amazing. And in this... I take it back, Sean. I take it back. That's so much better. It's so much better. And in this, it's just a shot of James Franco grinning like a friggin' moron. as like this (laughs) CG storm rages around him and the camera just, you know, CG inserts color into it. I I just did not like it. Um, Speaking of Sam Raimi, though, there's a couple of things. So you, you mentioned they do do the aspect ratio change. I liked during the storm, um... There was a bunch of stuff in the tornado that uh, the wizard gets taken away on that, like, attacks him and it's flying through his balloon and it's all getting torn apart. I really like the sequence. It felt really kind of Sam Raimi. There's a lot of energy in it. It kind of felt harrowing in a way that (laughs) none of the rest of the film did. You Um, imagine... Sam Raimi actually throwing stuff at James Franco in that scene. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to it later on, but you know you know, 100% it is Sam Raimi with the stick smacking Bruce Campbell on the head as hard as he can. A hundred percent. You knew no it is. The other yeah. thing that I liked about this film was when Mila Kunis, who plays Theodora, one of the evil wicked witches, just to go through the cast, Rachel Weisz plays Evanora, uh, which is the other wicked witch. Michelle Williams plays uh, Glinda which is the good witch and Zach Braff plays Finley, which is a flying monkey that befriends him. And um, Mila Kunis is in love with the wizard for some friggin' reason that I don't understand. And (laughs) 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 some friggin' reason. I don't know. (laughs) He's being fucking nice about it. That like, that's when I say this is a bad script. Like every woman is just in love with him for no other reason. Like other uh, than the plot needs it. Look at the guards from Oz. They're they're like weird prosthetic makeup faced. Like James Franco 
hands down is the most attractive man in the not, lots, right? Not in the real world where he somehow manages to – he lies to Abigail Spencer earlier in the movie. And yeah. it's like Zach Braff walks in and you're like, okay, no, go, go. Zach Braff is so much nicer. Don't ever come back into this. His character motivation is just him lying to women to have sex with them so he can get what he wants out of them being like – shitty misogynist and i was like oh that aged really unfortunately we're not even a decade out from it no well and the, but it's just like oh he like he wasn't this is just what james franco was apparently doing like low these like 30 fucking years oh sorry i was gonna say the other thing i liked about the film okay so mila kunis she plays theodora she's in love with the wizard but the wizard then leaves her for michelle williams I don't even know what his plan is. He's just being an asshole to everybody. But at any rate, she finds out about this and she gets upset and she starts crying and her tears scar her face because she's the wicked witch. And so her weakness is water. And as she's crying, she's screaming in pain and the teardrops create these massive lined scars under her eyes that are steaming up as if it's acid. And I was like... That is the most badass thing I have ever seen. That one scene was awesome, and nothing else in the film was. But it's it's weird, it's weird too, because then I mean, the th- something else that jumped out of just about half-assed and middle of the road. This is with nobody trying. Is that in the 1980s when Disney wanted to tie in Return to Oz to MGM's film, they bought the rights to the ruby slippers so they could wear them. In this, they couldn't even have the, the witch couldn't have her chin from the first movie because MGM owned the rights to it and they wouldn't pay them for it. So that's why she doesn't really look like the wicked witch. And that's why everything about her is slightly different because Disney didn't want to pay MGM for it. It was a $200 million film. I, oh God. Um, that is, that is so, okay. Then, yeah, then your analogy of one party up the golden road holding all the power with no one else, keeping it for themselves. This film is proof of that. Yeah. Uh, I just want to quickly go through this. I just have a few notes that I'm just going to say. And then if you guys have comments, you have them. Um, Zach Braff's monkey character is the ugliest fucking CGI character I have ever seen in my life. This the is CG in this movie is fucking terrible. Bruce Campbell, he wasn't third build. Like, uh, <laughs> he's, he's like up there. He's up though. there. He's pretty he's high like build. fifth or sixth build. And I think he's only in one scene. Is he in two scenes? He's, a, he, 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 he's in one it's scene. It's a cameo, but he's like... It's a cameo. He's the, the doorman He's in the in opening Oz, credits. Right? I do have one other question, and this is something that I honestly didn't understand, and I'm hoping you do and you can explain it to me. So when Oz first meets Theodora Mila Kunis, and Mila Kunis takes him to Rachel Weisz, and they are in the Emerald City... The throne room, yeah. Okay. And then he leaves to go find Galinda. And then Galinda takes him to the Emerald City. Are there two Emerald Cities? No, it's not the Emerald City. That's a different... What's the other city? city. I mean, because they have to go through the, like, poppy... I don't think they say what it is. I just imagine it's another castle. I have no idea. They both had an... Emerald City, and I didn't understand, like, they didn't explain that there was two Emerald Cities. I mean, I, I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay. So, uh, so it wasn't just me then. All right, fine. That's the, and, like, the thing about it is, is, like, it was one of those moments where it's, like, had people who give a shit been involved in this, you're like, there is almost a story here. The story's actually about the witches, but, like, and never mind that you also say that this is them trying to recapture um, Alice in Wonderland. From what I remember, this is kind of like the height of Wicked fame. And so I think it was maybe them trying to cash in on Wicked. Oh, oh you know what I actually did like? Um, I like China Doll. She was the only fun thing in the movie. 
Okay. Um, I don't know. That was it. That's I the almost nice thing forgot I'll say. she like, was in the movie. So fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. And it, it's, it's so fucking lazy. And all the like, oh yeah, and we got the same actor to like play the China girl as the girl whose legs he couldn't fix. And it's like, and you're like, and, but you're like, yeah, I know. And it's like, and we started off black and white. And you're like, yeah, I know. You already did this better in the eighties. <laughs> all right. Well, you know what? Let's. Uh, unless you have anything else to say. Robbie, are you like massaging your mic? Sorry, I might have been there. Yeah, my apologies. You can. Just okay, I'm just wondering. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I think I'd put this. I don't know. I, th- I don't know. This is probably worse than even Stevens. At least even Stevens was like funny to talk yeah. about. Yeah, I'm gonna agree with you. I'm gonna put this below even Stevens. That's where I was going to put it. For sure. I think it offended me more than even Stevens, just because <laughs> even Stevens is a, like a made-for-TV dumb movie where. Some people are phoning it in, but other people are trying to have fun at different moments. This movie, it just made me angry knowing how much James Franco got paid for this atrocious, embarrassing performance. Well, Sam Raimi didn't – this was his last film up until – Doctor Strange 2. Doctor Strange. Just like turned him off of films. Yeah. Uh, Fucking fair enough. Yeah, it's really bad. Could, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I don't think you can blame him on this. And I'm sure he was hired to do it and was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And they were like, exactly what we tell you. And he was like, all right, fine. I'll take the paycheck. Rob, do you have a ranking for this? Uh, I mean, same idea. You know, it's just mediocrity at its worst. Well, I feel like mediocrity is a compliment to like we're putting this below even Stevens, man. Like that's not mediocrity. Like that's bad. Like this is a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. OK, <laughs> yeah. I will put it above blank check. And I will put yes. it ablo- above 2018 Freaky Friday, but... That's still your worst. I think I put Blank Check actually at the bottom, but those two okay. actively pained me slightly more than this movie did. But man, was I angry watching this. I was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Anyway, so we're ending on a down note, but... Uh, <laughs> for, for an episode where uh, this movie we're talking about, the original movie we're talking about is the number one... Uh, out of two of the people here. Return to Oz is fantastic, and Oz, the great and powerful, is terrible. There's your takeaways, people. Um, yeah. Oh, I do have one other thing, just as I usually talk about. I just want to mention um, Return to Oz came out in 1985. The other movies that came out that year, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. Also, we got The Black Cauldron, Horrible Bomb. Also, we got a movie by Touchstone called The My Science Project, which was a time travel comedy starring Fisher Stevens and Dennis Hopper. <laughs> I've actually been I've actually been meaning to watch that with some friends. It's on our list. Made no money and was a terrible bomb and was apparently ha- awful. Um, the journey of Natty Gar. Uh, Natty Gar or Natty Gan? Uh, did I say Natty Gan? I uh, I can never read my own writing. The journey <laughs> of Natty Gan. Just going to edit out my mistake there. Uh, well, that came out that year. Same with One Magic Christmas, which is a Harry Dean Stanton Christmas movie. <laughs> that is a loaded sentence. Disney had a bad year. As we alluded to earlier, um, Flight of the Navigator was not greenlit by Disney up until they filmed the most of it uh, because of the poor reception to Return to Oz. Yeah, well, they were just having a lot of bad luck. And they were like, we can't be trusted with money. We shouldn't be allowed to make movies. Yeah. <laughs> Go somewhere else. And then at their height of their powers, they spent $200 million on Oz the Great and Powerful. I mean, uh... just to... So what are we going to do next, boys? I don't know. I'm just... I'm Googling... I'm not Googling. Sorry, I'm on Disney Plus searching things. 
to try to get something. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys a couple options. So Yay. I do want to. So here's what I'm gonna say. I do want to do the Shaggy Dog, but <laughs> if we do the Shaggy Dog, I want to also do the Tim Allen remake. And I don't know if we should do another two movies at the same time week. That might yeah. be too much. Let's just do one. So we'll save Shaggy Dog. A uh, couple options that I've been talking about recently. One. We could do Million Dollar Duck. I mean, I've never heard of that film up until you I described it. I love the title. It. So. That's, that, that's that same year as Bedknobs, isn't it? Yeah. Two, we could do Babes in Toyland. Oh, yes. That was actually going to be my vote for the week. Ah! So. Oh, well, then we can do that. And then three, the other one I was thinking we could introduce soon is Splash, the Tom Hanks movie. Uh, but we get to watch the Disney Plus censored version. Yes. Yeah, where you don't get to see her butt. But, um, yeah. all right, so those are three options. I'm going to guess you guys are voting for Babes in Toyland. I mean, if you just want to get a roll of making me happy, yes, please. But I'm open to the shaggy dog. All right, well, next week we are going to do Babes in Toyland. Signing off, Robbie, give us your catchphrase. No, thanks. I'm not thirsty. Bobby, give us your catchphrase. No fried food. How'd <laughs> you keep your health? <laughs> and as for me, it's a kid's movie. <laughs> that's the show if you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time send us an email at the podcast war tennis shoes at gmail.com we can also be reached on facebook and twitter at pod war that's at p-o-d-w-o-r-e and if you like the show give us a good review on your podcast platform it really helps us out we hope you tune in next time thanks